0: Hello and welcome to the curator of Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco Radio. This week, we raise a glass to the diva. Plus, we pay a visit to London's Denmark Street.
1: Each shop is independent and we all have our own niche. However, I believe if we weren't on Denmark Street and we were bricks and water outside of London, it would be a very difficult time.
0: All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start with a fashion special Monaco on Design, and of course our guest was Monaco's fashion editor Natalie Theodosi. She spoke to Silvia Venturini Fendi, artistic director of accessories and menswear, who presented her 2024 Spring Summer Menswear Collection at the recently inaugurated Fendi Factory. First, we discuss its key themes.
2: So Fendi uh has recently bought a factory in Capannuccia which is just uh, outside uh the center of Florence. It's a huge investment that LVMH made. I think one of the biggest single investments in a factory and and they've renovated it and created a state-of-the-art facility for leather manufacturing. So Fendi invited everyone um who was attending Pitti to Capannuccia uh, on the final day of the fair to see their new collection, but what was even more interesting than seeing the new collection was that everything happened around the artisans' workstation. So we saw Sylvia Fendi's new designs, but at the same time we also saw her team at work making the leather bags as the models were walking down the runway. So it was just really heartwarming to see them get the credit they deserve. So I was really lucky to go to uh, Capanucci and see the factory, just before the show when it was all calm and then the Fendi team was preparing the show and I I spoke to Sylvia then she was very calm, she said those few hours before the show is actually the calmest because there's nothing you can do, it's all done you just have to wait for the guests to come and for the show to start so we had a really nice chat about the new collection but also about how important it was for her to bring in everyone right at the source of where everything is being produced and, and to see how Fendi really Operates
1: amazing. Well, let's hear from Silvio Venturini Fendi, the brand's artistic director of accessories and menswear.
3: Now, it's the place where we do our research, our innovation, we work with all our artisans, so it's really the heart of the company. I think it's good for you to see but also for the people who work here to be involved in something that they never see because uh, normally they never are with us when we do a fashion show tell me a little bit
2: more about your relationship with the artisans because you're you're really bringing them
3: to the center of the story yeah. usually it's, it's more a behind the scenes role Designers are just the spokesperson of a company, but in reality it's much different. This sense of community is very strong and friendly, Mm -hmm. and they are part of it, and I would say one of the most important parts. If you are a designer, you cannot escape from having a very good relationship with pattern making, with Mm -hmm. people that do innovation, research materials. Those key people are so important and vital, and for me they are my colleagues. And it's nice to, in an optic of transparency, which is a word that I think is very uh, bright I for the it moment. Is. It's interesting to make people discover how we do our things. We tend to think that being a craftsman is something like an old kind of professional path. There is this uh, cinematic vision of a craftsman with the table doing... Yeah. Points and repetitive work quite alienating to me. In reality, it's much different. It looks like more like a, a scientific like laboratory. A lab. yeah, yes. a lab. there are so many young uh,
4: mm.
3: craftspeople who are here because we teach also here. We train them to be a complete craftsman. Before it was different the work. Was a bit repetitive somebody was devoted to do just the handles of bag sure. another was just doing pockets all your life doing a pocket today it's totally different everyone is trained to do the complete cycle they start the bag from the beginning to the end this makes people much more proud of the product it's because amazing. they could even some of them sign the bags mm-hmm. inside i know that they have <laughs> codes to know who made it, which is very nice. I think that it's going to be interesting to show people not only how we make things but also how interesting it can be to be the artisans of tomorrow. I guess you invested a lot in making it appealing and ensuring that the quality of life of people working here is amazing. Well, I think we that people are mean, The building. In Everybody talks about sustainability. Yeah. Sustainability is not only devoted to products and to materials, but also to people's
1: that was Silvia Venturini-Fendi there. Now, she was talking about her relationship with the craftspeople. You mentioned that you, I guess, saw it on show there. I mean, how, how critical is, is the role that these people at the factory play in maintaining this brand's reputation as, you know, an, an outstanding label with impeccable tailoring.
2: I think it's hugely important and I think those are the skills that can keep a luxury brand alive and and can make or break a reputation because at the end of the day you pay a premium for that kind of handmade quality. And people like uh, Sylvia Venturini Fendi are really Acutely aware of it and that's why they're making such a huge investment in this new factory and they're also making sure that these uh, workers are treated well, they have an amazing environment now to work in. They're also incorporating a training facility so that younger people can come along and these skills are passed on because in the last few years, it, it's been hard to recruit people and to make sure that there's a future to this job, given that digital, fast-paced environments have become much more popular than these artisanal skills.
0: And now, a diva special, all because of a new exhibition at London's Victoria and Albert Museum. I even wrote a little opinion piece about the power of the diva, and straight after we'll hear from Rob Bound, who spoke with the legendary designer Bob Mackey at the v the man who designed iconic dresses for the likes of Cher and Tina Turner. There's something alluring about Divas, the iconic female performers whose strong personalities have left a mark across the international film industry, opera stages and popular music. While they always played a strong part in my life, it is gratifying to see that they are now being celebrated in a new blockbuster exhibition entitled Diva, at London's Victorian and Albert Museum. Although the word means goddess in Italian, Diva has also been used to negatively describe female celebrities whose edgy personalities have been perceived as difficult amongst male-dominated entertainment industries. It is a view that the new exhibition aims to redefine. Here, divas are represented as revolutionaries and non-conformists whose hard-headedness and eccentric personalities have successfully changed societal norms. Among the exhibition's highlights are the diverse collections of elaborate dresses worn by opera prima donnas in the 19th century and by modern music icons, from Carlos to Cher to Tina Turner and Madonna. Their outfits feature bright colours, jewellery, bird plumes, wings, and many such contraptions aimed at enhancing the performer's extravagance and to make them stand out among the crowd. A rollout of images from the scintillating Grace Jones to the great Dolly Parton is also projected onto the museum's ceiling, creating a planetarium of remarkable women. Celebrities and role models don't always need to be nice. Irreverent, powerful and glamorous, divas represent the rejection of dullness in society and an alternative to a world full of boring conformist stars. Not only are they an essential part of the entertainment industry, but of society as a whole. As the late lamented Mae West put it in her 1933 film, I'm no angel, when I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. From Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco.
5: Thank you, Faye. Now, let's hear from Bob Mackie, the fashion designer behind countless diva looks, from Marilyn Monroe to Tina Turner, the man who specialised in putting the maximum effort or getting the maximum effort out of the minimum amount of material. At Monaco on Culture's Robert Bound caught up with Bob at the exhibition at the VNA, and Rob began by asking whether Bob was designing for divas or simply for performers and friends.
4: Call you, I need you, on fire as a designer, a theatrical designer, you better know exactly who that is, what they look like, what they do when they're on stage or just in person. you know you have to know how they move, what the audience wants to see them in, or how they how they think of them and uh you know it's 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 got a school <laughs> yeah.
6: and are you how collaborative were those designs did you do a number of sketches was it a one-hit wonder how yes. much back and forth was people there? people
4: have a lot some some clients oh, so use the word client that's so you know like doctors <laughs> you know, welcome to clients at the VNA. yes clients um, have a lot of ideas And a lot of them are very smart. They know what works for them, what doesn't. And usually the ones that have been in the business for a while. And then there are others that just trust you because you've done well with them. And those are most of mine, they trust me. You mentioned Cher. These
6: are stunning, stunning outfits up here. Opening
4: outfits for a Vegas show. Yeah. You walk out, the audience
6: goes crazy. So this is kapow, right?
4: Kapow. But bits and pieces come off in layers, and the boys will come in and remove the collar. And then later they'll remove the outer. And then underneath is a whole other kind of wildness that you, you know, it's, you, it's part of the entertainment value. It's, it's all visual.
6: These are incredible things. These are multi-layered constructions, as you, as you said. They put, serve a specific purpose in a show.
4: Always, but quite a lot of them, for her especially, worked beautifully. And then if, if I design her something and she says, well, don't I have something I can remove later? You know, she want, she's gotten used to it. Yeah. And you get a reaction from your audience when, when you do that. And and it's okay. That's that's her thing. Others that put one dress on, they sing a medley of songs, they go off and they change to another dress and do another one, you know. I mean, it's yeah. it's as simple as that. And, I mean, I know you've talked about the
6: fire dress a lot, Tina Turner's fire dress. This has been often copied, never perfected, other than by yourself and Tina wearing it. But tell us the story of that.
4: Well, there was a time when Tina, Tina didn't have much money and whatever she had, I sort of took it and used it for whatever. And, uh, and she, but she would go to these sort of inexpensive little boutiques, you know, on the left bank or whatever and, and buy a dress and, and. She thought, what can I do with this to make it more Tina? And uh, she'd bring them in to me when I first met her. She said, would you help me with these? And she'd put on these little cocktail dresses. And she said, do you have scissors? And we would start, you know, cutting into them and making, I mean, with those legs, those incredible legs. and A
6: good canvas there.
4: Beautiful, beautiful, and, and great great presence on stage and funny and 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 just charm the audience and, and scare the hell out of them at the same time you know
6: You're
4: when you're known for that, not to disappoint your audience. You can't disappoint them. You have to look the way they want you. They expect you to to look. I mean, even... I didn't do those, but the Shirley Bassey gowns. everybody expects Shirley Bassey to be just covered in beads and feathers and whatever and you're disappointed if she comes out in just a normal little evening gown. Why you know why why do that?
6: What happened short Shortchanged.
4: Short changed you don't want that
6: don't. Bob Markey, um, thank you so much for talking us through a tiny five minutes of your wonderful career. thank you. Hey, thank you thank right. you.
0: You are listening to The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And as part of our new series on the Monaco Daily, we're asking Monaco staffers for their nerdy pleasures. Monaco's Emma Searle went above and beyond and wrote a poem for her love of the Lord of the Rings.
5: In a world of hobbits, wizards and kings, I confess my nerdy obsession with Lord of the Rings. It all began with Frodo and his hairy-footed kin, who embarked on a weary quest to destroy the one all-powerful ring.
6: One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them.
7: One ring to bring them all. and in the darkness, find them.
5: From the rolling hills of the Shire to the lifeless pits of Mordor's volcanic fire, I know every twist, every turn, and every bend. Yep, you could say my obsession has no end. With elves, dwarves, and orcs roaming the land, I like to delve into Middle-earth popcorn in hand. But when my friends ask for Lord of the Rings film advice, I inform them that only the extended versions, the full 11 hours and 22 minutes, will suffice. Now, some may call it geeky that I've watched the trilogy more times than I can count, but let me tell you, from Bagan to Rivendell, every scene is paramount.
8: Welcome to Rivendell, Frodo Baggins.
5: I've analysed the folklore, the battles and the strife, and yes, I may have shed a tear or two, spoiler alert, when Boromir lost his life. My captain... I've donned elf ears, poured over posters, and so much more. My childhood bedroom was a shrine to Middle Earth decor. But why do I love it so much? You may ask. Perhaps it's the battles, the clash of steel, friendships, the epic task.
7: You shall be the Fellowship of the Ring. Right.
8: Where are we going?
5: But what truly sets this saga apart are, of course, the characters who truly capture our hearts. From Frodo the Brave, burdened with fate, to Samwise the Loyal, his steadfast mate.
4: I'm on your side, Mr. Frodo. I know, Sam. I know
5: And of course, there's Gandalf the Grey, a bearded wizard with a twinkle in his eye. With his booming voice, he has a special ability to exude cheeky wisdom in every reply.
7: A wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to
5: But perhaps most famously, in the depths of Moria, a dark place without music, light or the sound of birds, Gandalf faced down the evil Balrog, staff in hand, and uttered these four words.
4: You shall not pass!
5: And let's not forget Gollum, Cunning and depraved, with eyes like coals, he lurks within a dark and treacherous cave. By the power of the ring, he's forever doomed, for his obsession for the ring always looms. And then there's my favourite character, Legolas, the archer with his golden hair. A dashing elven prince, an agile warrior light as air. But when Legolas opens his mouth, his manner strange and reserved, he utters bizarre words. His one-liners are simply absurd.
0: A red sun rises.
9: Blood has been spilled this night. This forest is old. Very old. I feel something. A slight tingle in my fingers. I think it's affecting me. Something stirs in the east.
4: A sleepless malice.
5: Yes, some may scoff at his words so absurd, but they're a source of joy for the nerds in this world. But do you know what, dear listeners? I've learned but to embrace my nerdy obsession with a smirk upon my face. For there you have it, my geeky confession laid out in the open, and yet my passion for Lord of the Rings remains unbroken. For it's in Tolkien's world that I've found my place, a nerdy love that's impossible to erase. For Monocle Radio, from Middle Earth, I'm Emma Sill.
0: And for the entrepreneurs this week, we met Annabel Thomas, the founder of organic whiskey distillery Nakt on Scotland's west coast. Thomas reflects on her decade-long journey to change perceptions of the spirit to reach a more diverse customer base and innovate production through sustainable practices.
10: We had this family dream to set up a whiskey distillery. It's on my parents' farm. It's in some old, disused farm buildings. And that was where it all started. But before I quit my job, I went to do some research, said, look, I'll write the business plan, because otherwise we're just going to talk about this and never do it. And I went to visit a few distilleries, and it really struck me when I did that. They were very traditionally focused, doing things the way they'd always been done, which is not a problem in a traditional industry, but there was no one doing anything else. And in particular, the lack of focus on sustainability really struck me. And I thought, someone needs to do something about this. And that's really where it all started.
9: Now, tell me, were you then one of these entrepreneurial characters? Because I'm sure there's lots of people who have those conversations for 20, 30, 40 years. They never go anywhere. Something holds back most people. What didn't hold you back? Was it something that you did have? Was it a characteristic that you've always displayed in your previous life?
10: I actually don't think of myself as very entrepreneurial. I went to university. I went into strategy consulting. It's quite a kind of bog standard post-university city type career. I did spend some time working at Innocent Drinks, the smoothie company, which is a very entrepreneurial culture and it produces a lot of entrepreneurs so I think that was definitely inspiring I didn't see it as very a risky step at the time either because I don't know what I was thinking but I sort of thought I'd do it for two years and then it would run itself or something crazy but I definitely also I like to think that I don't want to have any regrets in life and I definitely thought when will I get the chance to do this again well never so I just didn't think about it too much.
9: <laughs> I'm not wholly convinced by the "I'm not an entrepreneur" story. It doesn't fit with my understanding of what's happened subsequently. But maybe we'll
10: maybe that's just in my head. You know, I don't think mm-hmm. of myself as an entrepreneurial person. But then, what the hell is an entrepreneurial person? I mean, don't ask me.
9: I should be providing answers on this program <laughs> called "The Entrepreneurs." <laughs> so tell me on on that point though about baking in then sustainable practice and nicknames of, uh, a B Corp. We know that is a hard one accolade or certification, whatever you want to call it. So you're obviously doing the right things. You wanted to bake that in. On this other point, though, about, as I said, we're not being pejorative talking about traditionalism, but the other sort of more innovative things that you have brought to bear here, a female-led business, lots of brilliant female leaders involved, was that another of the core values that you were determined to integrate into the that business plan that you drafted right from the beginning?
10: The innovative side, yes. But the female side honestly didn't even cross my mind. I was very keen that as a business, we had a kind of philosophy of what if we could try this, what would happen? That's more from a liquid point of view and a production point of view. The female side of things, honestly, I don't think anyone thought of it until about 2016 when we were starting to actually think about going public with what we were doing. And then people start making comments about, oh, but you're a woman in whiskey house. That I'm like, hmm. It's fine, <laughs> but I do think now reflecting on it, this wasn't conscious at the time. It gives you a different way of thinking, and I think that is a real asset.
9: And it's clearly been of great advantage to the business as it's grown. Let's just look back. We were chatting just before we started the the, the taping about when you'd said oh, oh, a couple of years, see what happens four years or so, wasn't it? The sort of development story, which we know was not perhaps what you were expecting. Roll the clock back again. Talk about the mechanics of that period, because it's a journey, I guess, of discovery, of horror, of delight in equal measure. So many components to research. What kinds of things were going on during that close to half decade development story?
10: Well, basically it was two phases. The first phase of two years was fundraising and the second phase was physically building the distillery. The first phase of fundraising was probably the toughest mental challenge I've done because it's hard to raise money for a business anyway. It was much harder in 2013, I think, than it is now because the government incentives have grown and so on. But it's particularly hard to raise money for a whiskey distillery because you're looking at massive upfront capex (laughs) and then a long period where you can't yet sell anything because it's still maturing. So the upfront costs are massive, which is very risky from an investor's point of view. You know, that's how it is. I think we approached over 800 investors and ended up with 45 So the perseverance to keep going and keep talking to the next one and keep chasing the last one and all the rest of it was pretty awful. But we got there. We found our cornerstone investor. And I think that's key. Someone who believed in the business enough to put in a significant amount of money. And then I think that helps the smaller investors to feel the confidence to put their amounts in. So we eventually got there in mid 2015 and then came the second hardest (laughs) was actually building it. It was a complicated build anyway because it's in an old building and everyone knows old buildings are difficult. We're then trying to put modern equipment into an old building and we're trying to do it in one of the remotest bits of the UK where if you've got the wrong size screw or whatever it is, it's like a three-hour round trip to a hardware shop. (laughs) Finding the right contractor was particularly difficult. There was actually a stage after we'd raised the money. So like my job was now to get this thing built and we were down to one contractor who would do it. Not that they knew this at the time. <laughs> and there was some kerfuffle amongst the kind of advisory team or, you know, architect, engineer types, which got back to this one contractor and it spooked them and they pulled out. So then I was left with no one to build the distillery. We'd been sitting on all millions of pounds for months, needing to be invested, basically. So I read How to Win Friends and Influence People in a Day. I got on a train to Glasgow and the next day I managed to persuade them to get back on the project.
9: That does sound scary and high stakes. With that fundraising round, did you find that you got to a point where you would speak to people who either got it straight away? I'm interested in that process. Did you have to win people around or did you manage to find a bit of a a recipe for talking to people that meant, like with your cornerstone investor, someone who's like... I like it. Did you get to that point of that shorthand or did did that that never really arrive?
10: I don't think we ever, I mean, I think with our Cornerstone Investor, everything came together, location, philosophy, everything just slotted into place. But I always reflect on that fundraising process in the context of the world we're in now and sustainability. If you go and talk to investors about sustainability now, it's like massive tick, 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 tick. It's all they're looking for. The arguments we had about it at the time, whether it was worth investing in this very expensive biomass boiler to fuel the distillery, people were really focused on the numbers. Carbon just didn't feature in any of those discussions. And I think that's a really interesting, in less than a decade, how much the world has moved on in that sense.
9: Well, that's really reassuring in a way, isn't it? Yes. Because a lot of the conversations I have is about, you know, will we ever get there? How do we increase the required pace of change? And that feels like the whole discourse has shifted in, in 10 years. We can be pretty optimistic then about it.
10: I that. agree. And I think it's interesting because if we were raising money now, you go to all of these green investment funds. They just literally didn't exist at the time. Fascinating like process.
9: So well, just remind us about that because, as you say, it's not just about a product that is more sustainable. It was the whole operation. You were very much ahead of the curve in terms of taking this holistic approach, right down to renewable energy You've already explained it. it was difficult conversations. Could you find you said already even finding contractors to start the build for for these more specialist things, were there any? Did you almost have to start subsets of new industries just to find the people to do the work?
10: To some extent, yes or at least we had to take big risks. So on the biomass boiler, which is the kind of main energy source, that was okay. A couple have been installed in Scotland. we found the right contractors to do it, and that's the kind of key. It wasn't without its challenges. We had to get it all the way from Austria and Germany because the industry to produce steam from biomass just doesn't exist in the UK. And, you know, getting German trucks down a single track road in Scotland (laughs) was interesting. But it was kind of on the other elements, like water, for example. I really didn't want to use a cooling tower, which uses lots of energy and chemicals for our cooling water, which is like most of the water usage in the distillery. And we ended up digging a pond And we just recycle this water through the pond, cool it in the pond, use it again. And the engineers were like, we can't support this. We can't measure the cooling capacity of a pond. And so we don't know whether it's going to be enough or not. So we just kind of had to say, well, we think it will be, let's do it and hope and plan some contingencies if it doesn't, but basically just take the risk.
6: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at ubs.com.
0: We're back with The Curator, now a highlight from Monaco's travel show, The Concierge. We speak to Sono Shivdasani, co-founder of the hospitality group Soneva.
8: My name's Sonu Shittasani. I'm the guardian of the culture at Suneva. we created our first resort in the Maldives back in 1995, so we introduced luxury travel to a destination which was largely mass-market at that time. Over the years, things have progressed. Um, I set up a brand called Six Senses, managing other people's hotels. We sold that business in 2012 with a view to solely focusing on Soneva, which has always been our flagship brand. We're based in the Maldives, with Soneva Fushi and Soneva Jani, and we also have Soneva Kiri in Thailand. When we started, it was very much about conservation, conservation of these beautiful places. So we would actually adjust our architecture to work around the trees. So we'd design a building, a villa, but then we'd walk on site and we'd see there's an incredible clump of screw pines which take 20 years to get to that level. So we'd chop the building, uh, <laughs> slice it into, have a corridor going through, and it made it fun. Bridges, etc. So it actually, when we finished, the buildings became so much more interesting as a result of working around the nature. When you think about the context of the successful, so 30, 40, 50 years ago, people who'd come and stay at our type of resorts were the landed gentry, having largely inherited their wealth, fresh air, fresh food, space, privacy. Today the successful are urban, self-made, where some of what the successful took for granted in the past is no longer available. It's difficult in an urban setting to get fresh food or fresh air even space and privacy are at a huge premium. So those things become important. So when you're um, coming to our resorts, the first thing we do, we take your shoes and we put in a shoe bag which says no news, no shoes, and you're walking barefoot. It creates a fantastic context. But you might be the most successful man in India or in Britain, living in London or in Bombay. But can you walk barefoot for a week or have that salad that was plucked fresh from the garden that morning or watch a movie? Where the stars are not just on the screen or talking about the stars, looking through the stars through one of the largest telescopes wherever we operate. And having someone like Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon, or Massimo Terengi, who runs the largest telescope in the Atacama Desert, or or just our resident astronomers explaining the universe out there. Or having a shower and listening to the hotel's Bose sound system with your favorite song already downloaded on the hotel's iPod and um, seeing the moon at the same time. So, you know, those, those are things. So when you become very close with nature, it becomes a, a fantastic luxury. And, of course, it's, it's uh, the most sustainable option as well. So luxury, wellness, and sustainability are not opposites. It's neighbour. They work hand in hand and feed off each other. We have televisions in our villas, but they're hidden. So quite often I'm looking at the guest satisfaction survey and the guest says it would be really nice if we had a TV in the room, but they're hidden in a trunk. So like, for example, my wife's designed these trunks that look like old, you know, Louis Vuitton trunks. And at the top one, there's a television. So you just have to lift it up or there'll be just a beautiful piece of driftwood on the wall, which looks like a piece of art. And then you slide it back and there's a TV behind that. So we hide it. And the television's really just meant to be used for watching movies but not sort of cable. So we disconnect cable. If a guest wants to watch a match, then engineering will come in and sort of put the cable in. But by doing that, by having that shoe bag, which says no news, no shoes, putting, you know, the guest's shoes in the shoe bag before they've even stepped on our jetty, it creates that fantastic suspension of disbelief. If you think about Shakespeare's plays... He would often create a play within a play, like Midsummer Night's Dream, Bottoms Play. So you're watching the players play a play, and you think, OK, that, that suspends the disbelief. And it's the same way our islands sort of create that, the no news, no shoe bag. And then the last thing you want to do is to watch CNN, because it brings you back to your reality. So I, I, I think that has a big impact. With our existing resorts we're always reinventing them and adding new things so Jani, we're working on a exclusive private island near there we're adding a few more food and beverage experiences and then at both resorts um, in the Maldives adding some aspects to the spa we'll be opening our third resort in the Maldives at the end of the year it's a bit of a secret i don't want to reveal too much now but um you know there will be that will unfold over the over the coming months in terms of what we're up to there and then we're working on projects in Thailand more projects in Thailand we like Singapore and very keen on Japan.
0: And from my show The Stack about the World of Print, I had the pleasure to welcome in studio Kenny Hunt, Editor-in-Chief of L UK.
11: So I started last March. So it's over a year, but actually my first round at L began in 2015. So I began as a acting features director. And then when I left at the end of 2019, I was deputy editor, having had roles as a fashion features director in between. And then I left and then I came back as the world was reopening post-COVID. And it's just been like the most delightful whirlwind ever since.
0: And it's amazing to be editor-in-chief of such an iconic publication because Elle, I think, you know, is well known around the world. How did you feel when you became the editor-in-chief? Because of course, I know you've implemented a few changes, but you have to be quite cautious, in a way, as well, to deal with such a title.
11: Yes. And also, to be clear and honest, you know, we're working in a a landscape that's ever-changing. And I don't mean just media, but I mean the world, particularly right now, following that sort of strange, surreal two-year period that we all you know, have come out of. So I think these are such important, iconic brands, as you said. I think it's really important to protect them and more important now than ever to really stand firm in what makes you who you are, while at the same time really being innovative and making sure that you're driving your narrative forward. So I think it is a really, it's an interesting balance and a critical one. Like it's critically important to get it right.
0: Absolutely. And one of the things, I mean, when I read Elle at times, is the importance for culture, I think, compared to other, perhaps, fashion magazines. I think there's so much culture, and especially on this issue. I know, actually, culture was the focus. But even in other issues, I have to say, how important is that for you?
11: It's important to me because I think it's a huge part of what the brand is here in the UK, you know, since its founding in 1985. But also, when you look at the earliest issues in France, You know, fashion and beauty is the lifeblood of Elle, but also culture is a really hugely important part of that. And I think Elle has always been a brand that really looks at women as beings who contain multitudes. Mm -hmm. You know, you can be a number of things, like, you know, having a, a strong love of fashion doesn't preclude a fierce love of art or literature or music or theater or food. You know, you can have it or even. Celebrity, or you know, the most lowbrow of you know, guilty pleasures and things like that. So, we can have it in a range of things. And so, I feel like coming up as a young magazine reader back when magazines were just solely print products, Elle always really resonated with me for that reason. And also because it was a place where I could see women who looked like me more frequently than other spaces where I was looking. So, I tended to, you know, I thought that. They were an early adopter when it comes to brands who would show inclusivity and show it as a sort of natural part of their space. I mean, mind you, you know, fashion has been on a a long journey when it comes to that. But Elle has always resonated with me as a reader for those reasons. And now as an editor, it's just an absolute joy to work on a a brand that I've always loved.
0: Do you feel when it comes to magazines and perhaps Elle in particular, this topic of, you know, diversity, you know, different showing different models, is it becoming more a natural thing? Do you think that's kind of the new standard, really, for magazines and and for Elle in particular?
11: One of my favourite stories to tell is about my first issue from start to finish, which was I featured Lizzo on the cover. Great cover. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. And what I loved about the response to that issue is that Having Lizzo on the cover did not make headlines because she was a Black woman. It made headlines for all sorts of other reasons. You know, the fact that we'd wrapped her in Balenciaga tape, the strength of the image, a lot of the, the behind-the-scenes things that were, you know, the fun sort of bits of video footage that emerged from it, and also the strength of her interview. But there have been various points in my career where a Black woman or a non-white woman on a cover would generate headlines. And so I think that itself is a sign of progress. I distinctly recall there was one September where—and uh, this is not so long ago. It was just a few years ago when I was at Elle the first round. Mm. There were a series of September issues on both sides of the Atlantic that featured black women on their covers, including ours at the time. And it generated headlines the world over— Broadsheet newspapers, major digital pure plays, like they were like, we have never seen a September where there were this many black women on the cover and it made headlines. And to me, that felt, even that felt quite sad that, you know, here we are. And it was 2019, if memory serves correctly. Here we are all the way up in 2019, and this kind of thing is making headlines. And being
0: shocked by it as well. I know, being
11: shocked and surprised and reporting on it. It just seems so, because keep in mind, I've spent the vast majority of my career, writing, chronicling the paucity of inclusion and fashion, you know, as I live it and experience it from my side of things, but also as I see it. So to me, it was just quite, you know, amusing in a way as well. So I, I do think it's a real sign of progress that we can look at the newsstands right now, look at social media, look at the images that are being put out there, and that not be the talking point. Mind you, we still have a long way to go in some other areas, for instance. And also, for instance, looking like, you know, at the power structures behind the scenes and things like that. I, so, I th- you know, I think it's it's very much a work in progress when you're talking about inclusion and representation within fashion as a whole. But I definitely think we need to recognize and celebrate the progress that has taken place. Oh,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. And one thing that I'm curious, I know, I know you're from the U.S. as well. How does it feel to add it a British title? Because I mean, we, we hear a lot of kind of British editors going to the US. And I'm very curious about this. Is there a difference in sensibilities as well? Or perhaps not?
11: Well, you know, I came up as a voracious reader of all the titles we know and love. I was an omnivore and very much I grew up with this, this idea of the great British editor editing mm. these iconic American titles. And these were people like Graydon Carter and Anna Winter, many, like Tina Brown. There were so many, so many, 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 many. Like, I mean, there's so many who are coming to mind. There's quite a long list. Liz Tilbaris. So it, it is quite funny. You know, I do find it quite amusing to be the one lone <laughs> American <laughs> over here. You're setting a new I'm setting a new But the thing is, I've lived here since 2008, so I really do consider myself a Londoner in so many ways. And I do think it's a gift to have had, you know, significant chunks of time on both sides of the Atlantic to really have that understanding. But there is very much a different sensibility. And so I've always loved... British fashion in particular, it's always really spoke to me. I think there's a very clear difference in aesthetic and sensibility and mindset. For me, I've always found that to be really fascinating and compelling and interesting. So to move here in 2008 was definitely a real learning curve for me. And I've written about it even, you know, my experiences as a black woman and an American woman navigating difference in a new place. I mean, we'll have to have a drink where you you share with me your experiences. The thing that I love about cities like London and New York, I think what makes it so great is that you get people from all over the world who are bringing their own perspectives and points of view to a national culture. So I think there's real beauty in that. And, you know, I have to say, I had two british boys you know i've I've really spent time a sort of real meaningful kind of time here that I think has Influenced my whole worldview, my approach to writing, my approach to editing, my approach to visuals, and I, I you know. But to go back to your original question, there is very much a, a, a very clear difference, and I think it's one that needs to be celebrated and respected and celebrated, basically.
0: And you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel talking to some American editors, British editors, even the way magazines are distributed. Because yes, correct me if I'm wrong. I think in the US there's still quite a lot of subscription. I mean, the country is massive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel in the UK like when people pop to the shop and they still kind of buy a magazine. Even the way people interact to magazines is different in a way. Would you say that's true?
11: Very much so. Although, you know, I will say that subscriptions, particularly during the COVID period, Mm. you know, we really saw a real uptake in subscriptions across the board for a number of reasons. But here... People definitely interact with the physical object in a different way. I think you, you definitely see more interaction and engagement with print here than, and then stateside, for sure, for a range of reasons. That's also just yet another reason that I love, love being here and I love the privilege of editing L.
0: We're back with The Curator. For food neighbourhoods, we're heading to the chic neighbourhood of La Condesa in Mexico City, known for its street-lined avenues and slow pace of life. Monaco's Mathieu de Falter guides us through the area's vibrant restaurant and bar scenes.
12: Today, I'll be taking you to Mexico City, and more specifically, the area called Condesa, a leafy neighbourhood in the heart of the city. Let me just start by saying that I am not Mexican, only a lover of this flamboyant, green and warm city. And when I say warm, I don't just mean the air, I mean the energy of the neighbourhood. There's no place quite like it. It's a relatively recent love affair. Last December, with no real plans for Christmas or New Year, I surprised myself by booking a last-minute trip to Mexico City on the 25th of December. Two weeks to recharge with good food and a strong dose of vitamin d today i'll just focus on condesa because that is the place that truly stole my heart if you feel like it perhaps close your eyes and just let me take you to this special neighborhood in la ciudad de mexico mexico city has a reputation for being buzzing and vibrant and it's one of the biggest cities in the world yet condesa runs at a slower pace I'd leave my apartment on Avenida Amsterdam, walk along the jungle-like path and grab a coffee at Blend Station, where they also repair bikes, savour delicious Mexican coffee and make my way down to park in Mexico. The park has something of a Mediterranean vibe with its tall, abundant trees, and funnily enough, I found out a bit later, that most of them are from the Mediterranean coast. Lebanese cypress, mimosas, palms. You'll also find a number of fountains, ponds, waterfalls inhabited by ducks and swans, all very fairy tale like And in the middle of the park, you'll find a square surrounded by a pathway in the shade. But I'll come back to that after our food tour. Before crossing the park, I would stop for a while on one of the benches in front of the pond and waterfall and then head towards Maki, one of the most incredible bakeries I've been to in my life. I'm French, and as you can probably imagine, this is a big statement for me to make, and I stand by it. The building in itself is beautiful, with an airy dining room with large windows and an outside leafy, secluded corner. One of the lovely bakers will greet you wearing beautifully hand-sewn old-school pinafores, which is a colourless, sleeveless dress worn over a white linen blouse. The only downside is choosing what to order, as it all looks and smells to die for. Sweet or savoury, you can have it all. Enchiladas or pastries? Personally, I would go for both, washed down with a fresh papaya juice. Before I leave, I make sure to grab una concha, which is a sweet and crisp bread roll, and a crumbly cookie dough that acts as its topping, and un pan de elote, which is a sweet corn muffin. You'll be pretty full after that. But nevertheless, it's time to make your way up to Mi Compachava, as you want to get in the queue before it gets impossible to get in. If you like seafood, Mi Compachava is a must. The big, airy space with bright yellow metal tables and open kitchen running the length of the room is Chef Salvador Orozco's vision of a Mexican coastal town seafood cart. Once you get a table, you can already order una norteñas, which is a can of local Mexican beer dipped in chili flakes and dried fish stacked on top. Still not entirely sure whether I like it or not, but it's quite special. On the table, you'll find the menu, catered specifically for seafood lovers, and about ten different salsas. Seafood is a hangover cure in Mexico, and almost everyone eating here is intent on either fixing last night's damage or getting a head start on creating today's. A few dishes I'll never forget. Raw scallop, simply served with chili, lime and coriander. The artful aguachiles, a dish of raw prawns, beautifully presented in a rosas, immersed in a spicy lime and green chili water, with an outline of crunchy, salted cucumbers. The combination of flavors counterbalances each other perfectly. The whole experience is totally mind-blowing. The other thing on the menu I highly recommend is the fish of the day cooked on the barbecue. Served with side of beans spread with nachos, rice with corn, carrots and peas, quesadillas con birria de pescado, Avocado, pickled onions, two fresh salsas and fresh lime. I mean, I could go on and on and on about this place. After leaving mi compachava, full, no doubt, but the freshness and rawness keeps it light, it's time to head back to Parque Mexico, to that square I told you about earlier. Lie on the floor, just underneath the trees, and listen to the bachata playing at a distance. After a little nap, I'll walk towards the dancers, some beginners and some really good all mixed together, floating in pairs to the incredibly sexy and romantic music that is bachata. If you're lucky enough, someone will ask you to dance. Don't shy away, you'll never regret it. Now, the food tour is not over yet. Once it hits 7pm, I'll make my way towards Taqueria Orinoco, which I would never miss in a million years even if I'm in Mexico City for 24 hours only. La Taqueria Orinoco is in fact a fast food chain for tacos. And it will blow your mind. I'd order an agua fresca de Jamaica, which is a hibiscus iced tea. A little bowl of bean soup served with fresh lime and coriander. A cheese taco with either chicken, pork or beef. You can also do half and half if you cannot make your mind up. Although I always go for pork. Served with baked potatoes and delicious fresh sauces. Red, brown, green, yellow, thick or thin, whatever your heart desires. You will come out of this a new human, not just content, but with a feeling of pure joy and bliss. It's now dark outside. I could just walk back to my apartment, but I want to make a quick stop to El Moro, La Turreria. See, I've got a sweet tooth, and I have a ritual of eating a square of dark chocolate before bed. I'm on holiday, though, so instead I'll have churros, with a traditional Mexican hot chocolate, mixed with cinnamon. It's not often that I fall in love with a city. Condesa is majestic, with trees, plants coming out of nowhere, everywhere. Colors that will put a smile to your face and people who will warm your heart. If you want to be blown away by the locals' kindness, the beauty of the vegetation and the slow pace of life, just go to Mexico City, more specifically Condesa. Walk around, breathe in and out gently, eat everything on the menu, live everything that there is to live. That's all I can say.
0: And now, something close to my heart in London's Soho. We have Denmark Street. And Andrew Muller takes us to London's Mecca for guitarists.
7: A short while ago, I had a guitar strings emergency. Martin Phillips of legendary New Zealand indie rock pathfinders The Chills was coming to Midori House to record a song for us. He had not brought an acoustic guitar with him on the Chills' current tour, so I offered to lend him mine, and realised, as I did, that the strings on it were in such a state as to constitute a tetanus risk. There was only one place to go. On my way into work, I dismounted the central line at Tottenham Court Road and made my way to Denmark Street. There's not really a whole lot to Denmark Street. If you start near St Giles Circus, the first thing you see is 6060 Sounds, which seems to specialise as well as in vintage guitars, rather less vintage leather jackets with an awful lot of unnecessary studs on them. Walking along a bit further, you get closer to a a venerable Denmark street institution like Hanks, which builds itself as London's most famous guitar store. Uh, They may not be wrong about that, but there's some fairly high-end merchandise in the window here. There's a 1964 Fender Jaguar for the thick end of five grand, Gibson Les Paul for even more than that. On the opposite side of the road now there's a very fancy looking cafe which would certainly not have been a fixture of Denmark street circa its glory days when the kind of musicians who used to frequent this alleyway were certainly not possessed of the wherewithal that allowed them to eat at places called things like Chateau Denmark and in fact it does now occur to me that that combination of Chateau and Denmark is something of a contradiction in terms unless it's One of these new French-Danish fusion places that we're reading so much about. On the opposite side of the road from me right now, in fact, there is a guided tour of Denmark Street going on. It does still have a certain cachet among particular music obsessives who want to come and see the street in which Elton John and Bernie Taupin may have collaborated and in which the Sex Pistols once squatted. Standing now in front of Regent Sounds, which certainly judging by the signage above the shop is one of Denmark Street's older institutions and on the left now One Joe guitars of, of which I have been myself a repeat customer quite tempted by a couple of things in their window right now there's a 1950s airline 1300 quid proper vintage looking guitar that you can well imagine Bill Haley having once strummed rock around the clock on Denmark Street was once the heart of London's music business, a hive of labels, publishers, studios and venues. Most of those are no longer there, but the guitar shops have endured. I've bought several guitars on Denmark Street. There was an unwieldy black Gibson 335 copy, which I think I eventually sold back to the same shop for much less than I'd paid for it. Then there was a black fender telecaster copy, an absolute hound of a thing, which I gave to a friend who reckoned he 'd be able to keep it in tune longer than one run through take the skinhead's bowling
4: take the skin-
7: I still own three Denmark Street purchases. The somewhat ridiculous but very pretty crafter acoustic I restrung for Martin Phillips, its fretboard inlaid with mother-of-pearl cowboys and cactuses, A handsome candy apple red 1980s Fender Telecaster and a gorgeous limited edition Gretsch 5120, custom painted by Hot Rod artist Jimmy C. Equal parts, musical instrument and work of pop art. If you want the real sound of Denmark Street, of course, you actually have to go into one of its shops. Let's give that a try. In No Tom Guitars, I spoke to Jacob Smith. In No Tom's window currently hang such treasures as a 1965 Fender Mustang, a 1967 Fender Coronado, and a 1968 example of that old-school headbanger's delight, the Gibson Les Paul Goldtop for just short of 12 grand.
1: We tend to specialize predominantly in vintage guitars, and um, we had a very strong workforce including a workshop downstairs with three master luthiers. We ensure We specify, we go through instruments, we sell instruments, we buy, we consign. And yeah, we value. That's what we do.
7: How important, though, to the business is the cluster of guitar shops on Denmark Street? The competition doesn't actually hurt any of the businesses. Do you think you all thrive from the fact that this is where people know they have to come if they want to buy a guitar?
1: 100%. It's a very healthy competition. Each shop is independent and we all have our own niche. However, I believe if we weren't on Denmark Street... And we were bricks and water outside of London. It would be a very difficult time. Uh, Majority of our business is tourism as well as footfall from the general public. And without that, it would be much harder to survive.
7: You do get people coming to Denmark Street because they've heard about Denmark Street and and they're curious about it.
1: Absolutely. A lot of tourism. Now, majority of tourism is, I would say, throughout the summer. We do get it year round, but it's more popular in the summer, of course, everyone on holidays. So... We do very well with tourism, so I'm grateful since COVID that tourism is back in action. However, without tourism, we would still survive, and we do still sell a lot to the English public, but tourism is a big part of our business, so without being on Denmark Street and without having the landmarks such as the Sex Pistols' old uh, rehearsal
7: cottage and uh, residences for a short while, people wouldn't come and see. Just finally then, what's the fanciest item you've got on sale just at the moment, should any of our listeners be suddenly tempted...
1: Well, one of them, uh, which is just sold unfortunately, but as you can maybe out here a guitar playing in the background is has a 40,000 pound pre war Martin D18, which is 100% original. And behind you is a 52, also 100% original blackguard telecaster for 60,000.
7: This would be, obviously, at the more eccentric end of the spontaneous Denmark Street purchase, but the magic of this tiny alley is that there's always something you go away thinking about, trying to find a way to justify to yourself. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller.
0: That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week...